All right, welcome back to another episode of What a Week. We missed last week due to illness, but we are now doing episode number three of What a Week. Uh, three episodes within four weeks. So we're not doing too bad on our consistency, Andrew, but we'll improve it as we go along. But how how are you? Fully recovered, I hope? Fully recovered. What a week it was last week because I was down for the count. I was uh, I was in no fit state to uh, put my thoughts out into the world. So thanks for your mercy in uh, canceling and looking forward to getting back to business here. Well, of course, me as well. And yeah, we've all been there. Uh, I have been there recently, as I was just telling you, I was in June, I think we had done this big family trip to Colorado and came back. And within three days, uh, I was, I was down for the count with some really nasty virus that I'm pretty sure was COVID. You know, uh, I don't, I don't really know to what extent it matters now. It seems like everybody I know has had it and many people, if not most multiple times, uh, but it was not fun. I felt really bad and it took me a while to, to fully recover. It was definitely a nasty, a nasty bout of something, but I'm glad that you are fully recovered and up for it. But yeah, I cannot imagine uh, podcasting in the middle of the way I felt. So if you, uh, if you were dealing with a similar thing, definitely a good thing we canceled. And I'm glad that we could just push it to this week. So for sure. Uh, what is new in Dallas, Texas this week, Andrew? Well, we finally got some rain. It is not raining presently, but it has been raining today and the temperatures are going down just a little bit. So I think we're getting out of the hundred, uh, plus daily, uh, daily highs. So Actually looking forward to slightly cooler weather and a little bit of rain to make my grass come back to life a little bit, maybe. Yeah, that'd be great. I think that September and probably April are the best months of the year in Chicagoland. And we're getting some like mm-hmm. early September weather now. So we've had some days where the high has been in the upper 70s and it's been blue sky, kind of a crisp, cool morning every morning this week. Uh, and it's been wonderful. We have definitely loved it. We're just we're just you know soaking up while we can because you never know when you're going to get another another hot spell that'll snap right back mm-hmm. at you or um, you know eventually it'll dip. But it's uh, it's been really nice. I don't know if I've told you this, but when we moved to Austin because we lived there for two years from 2017 to 2019, but when we moved there, we moved there on uh, at the end of July and we got into town I think on July 31st. And I remember we, we, uh, didn't, you know, we weren't into our new rental place yet. So we were just staying in an Airbnb that night and we're just looking around for like a, a, a dinner place to go to. And at the time it was just, um, my wife and our two girls at the time, uh, because we didn't have our, our sons were not born yet, and, but it was July 31st and we ate, we found a place, a restaurant, we went in there and we were like, it'd be nice to eat outside. And so we ate outside and then we realized this is super hot. What have we done? How, why are we moving to Austin in July? This was the terrible, the most terrible way to do it. On the other hand, though, you could make the argument that it's maybe the best time to move because it sets your, your bar so low that as soon as it drops out of this, you know, daily high of 105 degrees, um, then you're like, oh, the the weather's improving. It's pretty nice. Like we survived the worst of it. We can, we can do this. So, yeah, we moved, my wife and I moved to Phoenix, Arizona in the summer of 2010 when she was pregnant with our first child eight months pregnant. I mean, we moved when she was massively pregnant and we, we got there and it was 115 degrees and wow. we were walking into restaurants and stuff. And the hostesses at the restaurants just looked at my wife like, I am so sorry. Seriously? Like, I mean, we just got this like incredible sympathy. And I'll never forget my son was born July 7th, 2010. We left our car in the parking lot for, you know, a few days or whatever, however long it took us to yep. have the baby and get out and everything. And it had just been cooking in the sun. Um, during those days. And I went to go get it and pull it around. And I was like, I am putting my little precious new 
child into this oven essentially Amazing. i mean it was i can't even imagine how hot it was in that car so i i have been to phoenix multiple times and i've loved it every time but it's always mm -hmm. been in like fall to winter and never summer which is probably yeah. why i love it because i think if i had been there in the summer i would just think why why do people live here this is awful this is not fit for human habitation yeah it does feel that way i love phoenix though it's a great town yeah i mean again the times i've been there i thought it has i thought it was really great as well but we, yeah. we always seem to start this uh, talking about uh, weather and you know, yeah. we'll, find, we'll find some other banter topics at some point. But How dad-like how dad of us. It right? really is. It's very dad-like to talk about the weather. Uh, but uh, today we've got some other topics as well. We're going to do a misinformation segment. Uh, and you know the drill, Andrew, but to listeners who haven't heard this before, we each give each other three or more articles. And the task of the other person is to pick out the fake news from among them. So I think I went first last time, Andrew. Do you want to go first this time for our misinformation segment? I will segment? happily go first this time, Zach. Yes. All right. Okay, you ready? Ready. Okay, number one. This is from Ryan Mills over at National Review. Uh, he writes that in early August, the authoritative Australian Institute of Marine Science released a new report on the 1,400-mile natural wonder, the uh, Barrier Reef of Australia. And the news is that two-thirds of the reef, its northern and central regions, are showing record levels of coral cover. Uh, so everybody says the coral reef is dying, but this new study says it's coming back. So there's number one. Okay, that would be encouraging if true. If true. Big if true. All right, number two. This one is from the New York Post. The New York Post reports that the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zasloff, announced plans to scrap the forthcoming film Batgirl, a production that cost the studio an estimated $90 million, stating, this is Zaslov, if it's true, stating this, he says, it was too woke. That woke moment has passed, and now we can get back to making movies we believe in and that people want to see. So, so I am choosing if, it, if, if the quote that it's too woke is true, not whether or not it's true that it was shelved. Is that right? That's true. It is true okay. that it's been shelved. Is, is, right. is it for the reasons that Zaslav says? Okay. Right, okay. So that's number two. And here's number three. Again, from the uh, New York Post. Uh, this part is true. I'm sure you've heard it. That the other day, gruesomely, sadly, the 75-year-old novelist Salman Rushdie was attacked and stabbed uh, at the Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York. Um, <clears throat> but this report says that he's been living since 1989 with this fatwa or edict calling for his death issued by the Ayatollah Khomeini, then the supreme leader of Iran. The fatwa, here's the true or false, the fatwa is for Rushdie's novel, The Satanic Verses, and specifically for a sequence in the novel in which one of the protagonists, a survivor of a plane crash after a hijacking by two Sikh terrorists, describes a dream that contains a, quote, revisionist history account of how Islam was founded. So in other words, the fatwa is because of this passage in the Satanic Verses about this dream sequence offering a different version of how Islam came to be. Those are your three choices. What do you think? All right. Uh, I'm fairly confident the third one is true, that that is the reason for the fatwa. I'm certainly... I'm absolutely confident it's because of the Satanic Verses, and I think it's because of that, that passage from the Satanic Verses. So I'm going to guess that that is true. How'd I do on that one? 
You got that one right. I okay. just I added that one. Most people knew about the satanic verses, but yeah. I didn't really know what it was particularly about the satanic verses that was so controversial. And apparently that's it. So, so it's, you got it's one, one right. dream from one character in one extended scene. Apparently, according to this yeah. report from the New York Post. Maybe there's okay. more, depending on yeah. whom you ask. All right, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I knew that there was something about a you know revisionist account of Islam. Uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I've never read the book, so I would not be able to, to pinpoint the scene for sure. Uh, okay, so so now it's between the record levels of coral growth yep. and the um, and the the reason for the Batwoman movie cancellation. Correct. All right, I am going to say that this is overall an encouraging segment today, Andrew, because I'm pretty sure the uh, the showrunner, the the director, did not say it was too woke, and the moment has passed. I think it is true that there are record levels of coral growth. And it is false that he said that's why they canceled the movie. How did I do? You are correct. You All are right. correct, Zach. Let me uh, let me tell you why. Yes, it turns out there's encouraging news from down under about the coral reef, and this guy named Peter Ridd, who has for years been a kind of prominent dissenting voice, and it, and actually ended up getting fired from a post that he had back in 2018. Um, he is somewhat vindicated for uh, years of of dissenting from uh, the mainstream narrative. Of, of what's happening to the coral reef. So now, apparently, he might have gotten fired for some other problems as well. So I'm not vouching for this guy like sure. whole cloth or whatever, but apparently this guy, Peter Ridd, down under, he's not surprised, but the rest of us are about what's going on with the coral reef. So there's that. Now to CEO uh, David Zaslav. It is true, as you noted, that the forthcoming film Batgirl has been canceled, canned, completely done away with. There are no plans apparently to Which bring it I was, out, to edit it. I did read reports of that, and I was amazed that like you're not even going to release this on HBO Max. You're just it, it's just done. It's just going to be. I mean, it's very rare that a film gets completely shelved like that. Absolutely, especially ninety million dollars into it. Yeah. I mean, you want to you want to recoup something. Which has given rise to a lot of speculation about why it was why it yeah. was canceled. Now, it is not true. You got it. It's not true that David Zaslav, right out in the open, said this movie is too that. woke. Right. right, we're not doing this kind of woke stuff anymore. He did. But he say, may have thought it. <laughs> he may have thought it because he did say, and I quote: "We're not going to launch a movie to make a quarter, and we're not going to put a movie out unless we believe in it." So there's something about this movie that he they at least believe doesn't it. believe in. Yeah. Some of, some of the things that I check out on the internet, some of the kind of, um, you know, insider podcasts and, uh, and YouTube shows and stuff like that are definitely speculating that there may be a kind of change of pace coming, especially in the superhero genre. There's kind of this, this sense kind of brewing that, that um, what Marvel has been doing, especially kind of doubling down on a lot of the messaging is just not really hitting its mark anymore. Yeah. Um, some people believe that the huge success of Top Gun Maverick has kind of shifted the landscape a little bit too, that like, you know, audiences just kind of aren't really that interested in some of the messaging that's coming through. So it could be, there's a lot of speculation that there are big changes coming at Warner Brothers Discovery and maybe even a new iteration of the DC movies that have yeah. a decidedly different feel than some of the more woke uh, Marvel offerings from years past. So you got it. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would certainly be on board with a just recasting of the entire super Herner, super, super Herner, superhero, uh, universes. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the Marvel, the early iterations of the Marvel movies and you and I may have talked about this previously, but my favorite Marvel movie 
at least of the of the sort of second half of the universe is Thor Ragnarok because it's completely ridiculous. It's mostly just a stand up, you know, a, a series of stand up comics delivering funny not lines like Jeff Goldblum's character or Chris Hemsworth um, or Mark Ruffalo for that matter. And it just pokes fun at the rest of the Marvel universe, I think, in this like very self-aware fashion, which is what you'd expect from Taika Waititi, who's just a brilliant director. Um, but it just, I think it highlights just how ridiculous and how off the rails the entire universe had gotten. I would favor for both DC and Marvel a return to uh, a return to the real sort of comic book feel of the universe and the real sort of uh, the real sort of like gritty Americana version of that that you kind of get a little bit of in the first Captain America movie. You know, mm. um, and I think that would be a, that would be a fun way to take the films. The thing that I that most disappoint, most uh, do not approve of or do not appreciate about those movies, just how much just complete carnage and destruction there is throughout. I remember watching uh, one of the one of the uh, Superman DC films, and they're just entire locomotives being tossed, you know, all around Metropolis, the city. That, that's the isn't that what it's called, the city in Super, Superman? I think it's Metropolis. Yes, Metropolis. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you can tell how much of a comic book enthusiast I am here, but they're yeah. just like locomotives being tossed around, and entire skyscrapers being raised, and it's just like, come on, this is not uh, this is not what the superhero Superman imagination is supposed to be. So. I would, I would, I would welcome a return to a smaller, purer superhero universe, if you will. We'll have to wait and see. I'm not a huge comic book guy myself, so it, as far as like going back to the vision of the comics, that's that's not always going to hit the mark with me. But uh, I definitely am tired of the MCU. So yeah. something different would be. Welcome. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm certainly not a comic book person either, but I can at least appreciate that the comic books, as I understand them, are very different from the universe as we've been given it. You know. Yeah. And uh, to me, the, the, the former is just more attractive. Um, all right. Well, I'm glad that I, uh, I batted three for three on those. Are you ready for your, your uh, stories here? I am ready. Okay. Um, number one, from our friends across the pond, The Telegraph. Academics working for the, uh, the Shakespeare Globe, the, the, uh, the theater, Shakespeare Globe, have cast doubt on the gender identity of one of England's greatest queens, that is Elizabeth I. And when you read that they've cast doubt on Elizabeth's gender identity, they're not suggesting that somehow Elizabeth was a man in drag, but rather that Elizabeth I may well have been non-binary, Andrew. Okay. And in support of their argument, they, they, they cite Elizabeth herself. Or they might say they themselves, <laughs> who says, who said, quote, I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. Mm. All right. So that is item one. Okay. All right. Item two. Now, I, obviously, the, the true false is not was Elizabeth I non-binary. The true false is, is this a Got real it. news story? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, item number two. Uh, famed doctor. Uh, this is from NPR. Uh, they don't say famed doctor. I'm describing him as famed doctor. <laughs> uh, but director of the National Institutes of Health, Anthony Fauci, recently discussed at a public forum the so-called Fauci effect, uh, wherein he described post-COVID the alarming loss of public confidence in the public health establishment and what drived it. And in this conversation... Fauci struck a different tone than he has in previous appearances, admitting some level of fault for driving that loss of public confidence and 
saying in his remarks that he could have been and perhaps should have been more transparent with the public. Okay, that's item two. Okay. All right. Item three comes from Minneapolis. This may be actually, okay, I was going to say maybe AP article, but uh, I think it's actually a Fox News article. If it's true, we'll see. That could be just throwing you off there, Andrew. But uh-huh. All right. Yeah. An agreement between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers Union and the school district in this area of Minnesota states that uh, white teachers will be laid off before teachers of color, regardless of their seniority. All right. That is item number three. So okay. you have three to choose from, Andrew. Let's go through. Which, first of all, which one, you know, choose one that you think is true. And we'll, we'll narrow down the last two if possible. Um, All right, let's have a go at it here. I think your third story there about the Minneapolis teachers is true. It is true. Um, And I I haven't read any story to that effect, but my eye happened to catch some little bit of a headline or something the other day, something about Minnesota race teachers or something. And so when you started reading, I thought, ah, that must be what it is. So I'm going to say number three (laughs) is true. That is it. Correct. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm sort of careful about things that I retweet these days, Andrew, because I think, oh, Andrew might see this, and then it ruins it for misinformation. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, good thing uh, so, I've been kind of uh, less active on Twitter lately, so you, yeah. can, you might be able to get one by me. Uh, well, so I I did not retweet this one, so uh, it, but it is indeed true. Um, so there's a process called accessing, and accessing happens when uh, due to a drop in enrollment at a school. The school district says, hey, we have to lay off teachers here. We just don't have enough students mm-hmm. to meet the demand. Um, or we don't have enough demand to meet the supply. Yeah. Uh, the students are the demand. The teachers are the supply in, this, in, the, in the correct ordering of things. So anyway, they do this thing called excessing, which is really just a fancy word, sort of a school-specific word for layoffs. And the direct quote from the agreement between the school district and the teachers union is, quote, if accessing a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, presumably the site is the school itself, the district shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population. So it's, it's not that they'll lay off the most senior non-minority people, non-people of color, but they'll just go up the seniority chain. And if this person is a member of an underrepresented population, they'll, they'll go to the next most, the next uh, so not the ne- the next least senior person who is not in that population or in an underrepresented population and lay that person off. So this is in fact true. Hmm. How do we feel about this, Andrew? Oh gosh, I I don't uh, I don't I don't really like that. I have to say, I do remember I w- I myself was a public high school teacher for three years, and uh, it was there was a kind of last hired first fired policy. Once the year started, there was always a little bit of little bit of nervousness, like, oh, gosh, if we don't hit enrollment, then, you know, so-and-so isn't going to keep yeah. be able to keep their job or whatever. It seems only fair, last hired, first uh, first fired, I suppose, if you have to have a system like that. So uh, I don't really think uh, I like the singling out on, on uh, racial grounds. But I don't know. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I think I would actually go a little bit further than you. I don't even know. I mean, cause I totally understand the last hired first fired mentality and, you know, having worked for a while in government in the military, in my case, um, I understand that there's just, you know, seniority and sort of the time that you've spent in the seat certainly dictates something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tend to favor just much more merit- meritocratic systems where how you perform determines where you are in the, in the, uh, on the chopping block. What I certainly don't support is just racking and stacking people according to race. Uh, yeah. that just, that is, that opens us up to a ton of different problems that 
should be obvious and I wish were obvious to more people, but somehow are not because we see, you know, agreements like this enshrined in the uh, enshrined in this uh, this example. Um, it it troubles me, too, that organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union are not jumping at the chance to uh, to fight back against these, because mm -hmm. I think these things just needlessly divide us even more than we are already. And ultimately, we'll look at these things and say, what were we doing trying to solve problems of racism by instituting more racism? How in the world do yeah. we ever think that would solve the problem? Yeah, I agree. Okay, now you're down All to right. the last two. What do you think? Okay, uh, here, I'm going to tell you, here, here's what I think. I want to tell you why I think the one that I think is wrong is wrong. But first, I'm going to tell you the other one that I think is right. I think for, I have no reason to say so, but I think that number two is also true. The thing about Fauci uh, saying something uh, about his role in the, you know, the pandemonium or something like that. I just don't think, I, I think it's just sort of like too strange to be false. So I'm going to say number two is true. So the, the, the Fauci took some responsibility for the loss yes. of, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, no one would expect that. So yes, he did. Um, number two is actually false. Uh, that's the false did, one. Yeah, okay. that's the false one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he did talk about the Fauci effect at length. And I actually have a clip mm. that I can play for us here. So this is, this is Fauci talking about the Fauci effect. But the Fauci effect, as he describes it, is not, in fact, the precipitous drop in uh, confidence in public health institutions. It is uh, something entirely different that we'll uh. talk about in just a minute. It's called the Fauci effect, which is sort of like, you know... As, trust me, I'm, I, I don't get excited about that. <laughs> I mean, it's nice, but I mean, it's, it's I, I, people go to medical school now, people are interested in science, not because of me, because people, most people don't know me, who I am. My friends know me, my wife knows me, but people don't know me. It's what I symbolize. And what I symbolize in a, in an era of, the normalization of untruths and lies and and all the things you're seeing going on in society from January 6th to everything else that goes on, people the craving for consistency, for integrity, for truth, and for people caring about people. So there it is, Andrew. That is the okay. so-called Fauci effect, according to Anthony Fauci. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what what to say. Uh, <laughs> I, it's really hard to listen to that with a straight face and think there's the gall of this guy to just unprompted, you know, oh, they're calling this uh, thing the Fauci effect. And um, oh, that's just what they're called. Their, their words, not mine. And um, uh -huh. what it refers to is a bunch of people just really pursuing medical and not because of me. I mean, uh, you know, they, it's, it's my name, but um, no, what, it's really about what I stand for, which is, you right. know, truth and justice and the American way and science with a capital S. And it's just... Come on, are you kidding me? Yeah. Completely that, ridiculous. E even if this person was an unimpeachable advocate of, you know, capital S science, which we can talk about the sort of epistemological problems with that, you know, whatever. But even if he was this unimpeachable advocate of that and not some, uh, you know, politically mired, um, constantly dishonest uh, funder of a questionable, questionably unsafe studies abroad that may or may not have played a role in the pandemic's origins, um, it would still be completely inappropriate for him to just be like, you know, uh, broadcasting himself as the sort of arbiter of science um, in, in that way. It's completely absurd. 
It's right in line with the whole, if they attack me, they're attacking science comment that he made some time <laughs> exactly. ago too, though. So, I would have a, thought that by, by now he would have learned his lesson that you don't say things like to attack me is to attack science. But he said that. And at the time I was like, that just must be just a gaffe, right? Like he doesn't actually think of himself as science. But no, this seems to suggest he seems to, he seems to think of himself as science. He is, he is science, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that maybe if a bishop got, you know, pushed over in the street, he would feel like it was an attack on Christianity or something like that. Right. It's sort of in line with kind of the religion of scientism, I suppose. Yeah, precisely. Hmm. Uh, so very troubling. All right, so that leaves the third article, which is, in fact, true. Tell me why you thought this was false. Okay, here's what I thought, Zach. I thought you were trying to put one over on me because I had heard something about a play or... You know, I need to kind of uh, verify things or look more deeply, I suppose. But I had heard something about Joan of Arc lately, that there was something, and I believe it was in England, that there was some kind of reimagining of her along the lines of non-binary. Um, and so I thought maybe you had just swapped out Joan of Arc for Elizabeth I, and you were trying to catch me out on that one. But it does make perfect sense that they would do that with Elizabeth I. So uh, I'm, I'm interested to know more. Well, Andrew, interestingly, you are, to, to your first point, you are absolutely correct. The Globe, this, the very same Shakespeare's Globe, has a new play called I, Joan, and I'm quoting mm -hmm. directly from their, uh, their Twitter. In fact, let me just go to their press release about it. Uh, here we go. Um, identity in I, Joan. Shakespeare's Globe proudly presents a new play, I, Joan, with Joan as a legendary leader who in this production uses the pronouns <laughs> As they did in the Middle I can't ages. even get through it. I Uses know. the pronouns they, them. <laughs> you know, the problem in, in, with that is that in, in French, she would still have to choose either masculine or feminine, they, them. Oh. So it's, uh, it's a, bit of a bit of a rub there. That, is a, language. that is a really good point, Andrew. Yeah. There's, so you read this and... Um, Oh man, this is just, this is just, it's like nails on a chalkboard to read this. Here we go. We are not the first to present Joan in this way, and we will not be the last. That's quite a, quite a prophetic statement. Re regarding the use of pronouns, they, to refer to a singular person, has been traced by the Oxford English Dictionary to as early as 1375, years before Joan was even born. Regardless, theaters do not deal with historical reality. Theaters produce plays. And in plays, anything can be possible. Hmm. Shakespeare did not write historically accurate plays. He took figures of the past, asked questions about the world around him. So they, they, are, citing, they are citing Shakespeare and the, uh, the etymology of the word they as uh, narrated in the Oxford English Dictionary to, uh, to justify their presentation of Joan of Arc as a they-them character. Interesting. Isn't it crazy Amazing. in this day and age, you know, that that we live in a world where it's kind of the accepted uh, position to take a famous woman and then um, highlight uh, that somehow the best thing about her is that she's not actually a woman? Right. That seems to me kind of the height of sexism and, you know, totally whatever whatever everybody used to be against. This is, I think, Andrew, the exact correct take that I was thinking about as well when I saw this tweet. And I was thinking about this just thinking, I have, I have two daughters, daughters mm -hmm. to whom I have relayed the story of Joan of Arc, who have read their own chapter books about Joan of Arc, um, who take inspiration from her story of bravery and see her story uh, as correctly that of a woman who can do great things. 
Uh, and so to, to take, you know, you could say the same thing about Elizabeth the first. Now, obviously I'm partial to Joan over Elizabeth for obvious reasons, but, um, an amazing woman. I mean, even that quote from her, I recognize I'm just a, a feeble and weak woman, but I have the stomach and mind of a King. I think she said, uh, and so <laughs> somehow the, somehow the correct interpretation of history here is to suggest that those people are not actually women, yeah. which is really perverse. And this, this, see, is, this is the kind of, sorry, go ahead. No, this just reminds me that there's this film coming out about this, um, this group of women warriors in Africa, and it's called <laughs> Woman King. We may have talked about this before, <laughs> I don't recall, but it's like, we have a word for that. It's queen. Yes. You yeah. know, we don't need to like elevate a woman to the status of a man in order right. to demonstrate that she's strong. That right. seems to me to work strongly against the principles of any sense of like female empowerment, right? Right. Or even equality. I mean, I think that's playing directly, you know, to, to use the language that is uh, only marginally helpful in certain conversations, but uh, the patriarchy, the idea of the patriarchy, right, that men are somehow at the top of this pecking order. Right. Um, to call a queen, and a very successful queen at that, a woman king, is really just to subscribe to those same principles that you're railing against. Yeah. Uh, and so it, so it is very strange. I mean, why not just call her a queen? Because that's what she was, and she did it really well. And better than any of the men around her at the time, which is exactly why she was able to be in that position. Why do you have to call her a woman king? Doesn't it seem to take away something from her womanness, which is in, in fact what is especially remarkable about her. Right. Um, yeah, uh, completely ridiculous. But this is, I think, you know, one, one of the reasons why J.K. Rowling has been a not not solitary, but a leading um, and often alone voice on um, these issues because she recognizes, as a as a true feminist, I would say that uh, women are remarkable people who have a, uh, a set of capacities um, that is um, equal to, but also different from men, mm-hmm. and to erase the category of woman as a legitimate identity, um, or to you know wash over it, gloss over it, and change it, or suggest that it is malleable, or suggest that a man can become a woman, is to deny reality and to you know do real damage to this idea of woman as it should properly be considered. Yep. All right, well, that concludes our misinformation segment, Andrew. Are you ready to talk about our close read today? I am once again ready, yes. Cool, let's do that. So the close read for today, uh, and by the way, I will, uh, I'm about to uh, share a recommendation at the end of today's show from a listener who wrote in to me. Um, but if you have ideas on close reads and you're listening to this, you've, maybe you've read something, even, even if it was years ago and just thought this is a really thought-provoking essay or even book that Andrew and Zach should talk about, I'm all ears, always looking for recommendations on things to read. It does not need to be recent. It might be even better if it's not recent. And in fact, today's is from July of 2019. And it is called, We Need a New Science of Progress. The subtitle, Humanity Needs to Get Better at Knowing How to Get Better. And the authors are two gentlemen named Patrick Collison and Tyler Cowan. Tyler Cowan is an economics professor at George Mason University. He's a pretty popular blogger. He does the... Does the um, does the podcast circuit from now and then. He writes very widely, but he's very interested with ideas of technology, innovation, um, and, uh, and all things sort of that intersect with that, which is a lot. And then Patrick Collison uh, founded the technology um, financial a company called Stripe, which is uh, perhaps the most successful company you've never heard of. Stripe powers uh, you know, a double-digit percentage uh, of every single internet transaction that ever happens. Um, and they do so well because they just skim, you know, fractions of a, per- of a percent off of every transaction. But 
uh, are able to make billions of dollars uh, doing that. Um, and uh, and they're, they're still privately held as well. So they haven't actually gone public. So they're super successful, but still privately held. And Patrick and I forget his brother's name, uh, Ian maybe. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, that's what Patrick does. Uh, he co-runs it. It's uh, He's a co-CEO of Stripe, which is one of the only organizations that actually has a, uh, a successful co-CEO. I've heard that it works. I know someone at Stripe and uh, I've heard that it actually works fairly effectively, but I digress. Patrick Carlson is the other author of this piece. By the way, his brother is John Carlson, Patrick and John Carlson. Um, but so yeah, this piece, Andrew, do you want to summarize this or should I take a stab? Why don't you take a stab? I, I feel like I want to jump right into uh, commentary. All right, I'll do it. I'll do, I, I want you to jump into commentary as well. So let me just do a real quick, I'll really try to do like 30 seconds here. So the 30 second overview of this, Patrick uh, Collison and Tyler Cowan suggest in this piece that we need to institute and take seriously an idea of studying progress, progress studies. And what would progress studies be? It would simply be the study of how we have been successful, how we have made progress in our past. They raise, uh, they raise things like you know Silicon Valley, what made Silicon Valley successful. Um, the famous valley in Switzerland where there's a ton of you know, successful life sciences companies, what makes that successful? What made China the epicenter of technolo- technological advancement in the first millennium AD? Uh, what made arts and culture flour- fl- flourish in Florence um, in uh, the Renaissance? How can we learn from the successes of the past so that we avoid the failures of the future? That's what they are most interested in this piece, and that's what they are articulating. All right, um, Andrew, what are your thoughts? Well, I have, I have quite a few thoughts. I think this is a very interesting article. It's worth, uh, it's worth everybody's attention. You know, when I see something with the word progress in it, uh, so we need a new science of progress, I immediately sort of think about what the word progress means. Obviously, it is a meaningful word to these authors. In fact, I mean, they say that we need more progress in a whole bunch of areas, right? But, but that we also need this sort of like study of progress. But I think to myself, you know, I think about these, uh, I think about cave paintings. Have you ever heard of the Chauvet Caves in France? These famous paintings. There was a great movie by Werner Herzog called Cave of Forgotten Dreams, where he, he showed the inside of these caves that were discovered wow. that are like 30,000 years old. And um, they, are there they were paintings just discovered, on them? Paintings in inside them? the caves, yeah. So okay. and the, the caves were just discovered in the 1990s. They were hidden wow. behind this, this big rock slide, like sort of revealed where it was, like deep inside. Wow. Um, we know int- the cavemen are so interesting about in so many ways. One, one, they didn't live in caves. Caves were essentially like their churches. You know, mm-hmm. they went in there for rituals and that sort of thing. We know from evidence inside these caves, these Chauvet caves, that members of this same community touched up the exact same paintings in the exact same way, 5,000 years apart, wow. right? So these were people whose, for hundreds of generations, their, their prime directive in existence is preservation. Mm-hmm. is keeping things the same, right? We know the same thing about the Aborigines in Australia. I mean, they lived completely unmolested for 50,000 years until the English arrived, basically doing the exact same thing that their ancestors thousands and thousands of years before them had done, right? So now all of that is to say, you know, it doesn't mean that the progress we've had in improving lots of things about the world are bad, but what it does say is it is not taken for granted in previous eras that progress is the goal, right? It, it's just obviously not in certain contexts. Now, when we're in this like 
technological age, I always come back to the line that Dr. Ian Malcolm says in Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's character. Maybe you had this on your mind as well. But the line about scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could do something that they didn't stop to think if they should. Um, and this sort of just hangs over my head when I think about a lot of ideas related to progress all the time. And it brings me then to the article, this new science of progress that we need. And it just occurs to me when I rack my brain that, okay, we're not cavemen anymore. Our highest ideals are not touching up the same paintings that our ancient ancestors had, had left, although maybe we do want to do a little bit of that. But, um, but, but rather, the progress that we're making needs to be grounded in a goal. We need to know what we're doing everything for. And so when I think about what the science of progress is, I think, why not use a word like philosophy? You know, I mean, we, we have a science of progress. We have a way, we, or we might specify it further by using a word like metaphysics. Like, we, if we are keeping track all the time of what something is good for, for the end of the, the, human, the, the flourishing of the human soul, then we can kind of get behind some of these other questions about medical mm -hmm. interventions and, you know, computer technology and weapons and all of these kinds of big questions that are so perplexing in the modern age. So that's, that's my first pass on just kind of wanting to draw out some of the concerns that I have with the very idea of studying progress per se. Yeah, I think I agree with everything you've said. I would maybe add a few lines of commentary to it as well. Um, when we were texting back and forth about this, I said to you that I kind of like this piece and I kind of hate it. Uh, so I didn't say I kind of love and I kind of hate, but I kind of like. There's like there's something there that I think is good, um, but I kind of hate it as well. There's a lot there that I really don't like. Um, so what don't I like about it? I mean, uh, it, that, that's, I think, what you really covered well. Um, I think I don't like that there are no sort of metaphysical priors, no obvious metaphysical priors, at least not good ones, underpinning this. The assumption seems to be basically the technocratic imperative, that if we can do it, we should do it. If we can live forever, we should try to live forever. Uh, if we can, you know, go entirely green on energy, we should. Um, and the only thing that remains, the toughest task for us to do is to figure out exactly how to do that, you know? Um, you know, to, to take this further, this whole idea of, you know, uploading one's consciousness to the cloud so that we can sort of have an eternal existence in the cyberverse. Uh, you know, should we do that? Well, maybe we should if there's no if there's no sort of limiting principle on this idea of progress. And the piece does not explore or even suggest a limiting principle of that kind in any way. There is just no metaphysical prior. Um, that's what I don't like about it. To your point about, you know, we have a word for this study of progress and it's called philosophy. I mean, probably more accurately, like philosophy of science, right? That's the real question. Like, why do we study? Why should we study? Why should we pursue knowledge? What is the end of knowledge? What is the telos of knowledge? Those are the questions that progress studies should seek to answer. What they seem to be suggesting is something like, how best do we do it? Which is basically, basically, it, it's, it's sort of a scientific method question, right? Like, how do we iterate on this? These people were able to have success in Silicon Valley, how do we replicate that? How do we make this a repeatable experiment and do it over and over again? Which is to me a much less interesting question, to be honest. But in their defense, I think it is a worthwhile question, as long as you have the metaphysical priors in order, right? So if you've, if you've, you know, if if you are convinced that this is something that aids human flourishing, um, then how do you pursue it, and how do you best go after that one thing? Um, 
you know, in, in support of their, their claim about how we need that, uh, I will also reference another quote from um, Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, where he is talking to uh, Laura Dern's character. And um, he says, uh, man creates dinosaurs. Man, God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Right. And then she finishes and says, I think like women or dinosaurs eat man, women inherit the earth or something like right, that. Right, right. Um, but so his whole point is that, uh, his whole point is, you know, as they're watching the, as they're about to experience the real terrors of Jurassic Park, the point there is man is the architect of his own destruction. Yep. And so the reason why we need to sort of figure out how to iterate and sort of progress well is because we will be the architects of our own destruction if we don't do that. But to your point earlier, that's not simply a method question. It's not simply how do we make sure that we can have the most scientific progress against every kind of disease. It's about what that progress should look like and to what end that progress should be ordered, which yeah. is, as you point out, a, a metaphysical question. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder if progress studies will be interested in addressing, you know, the origin of the problems that then science has to solve right so yeah. i mean they're like very they're very concerned about like we have to make progress in certain areas like obviously we all know that and and, and of yeah. course in a, in a manner of speaking i agree completely i mean if there are diseases of course we need to try and try yeah. and stop them but i mean the diseases themselves right are the product of like of other innovations right i mean it's always right. a kind of like push down pop-up yep. thing which you know c.s lewis in a sense like kind of prophesies about in the abolition of man that you know that we're sort of like we're on this like hamster wheel right of like of nature of conquering nature nature conquering us conquering nature nature conquering yep. us you know which um is just just very difficult to escape and and is ultimately i think pretty bad pretty bad for our souls so, you know, those are the kinds of questions I'd be interested in, in talking about with the, with the authors of the study here. Um, you know, the, the, other, the other big thing that needs to be discussed is the whole financial aspect of things. And maybe that's where the, the, uh, you mentioned that one of, the, one of the authors is an economist or is interested in yep. economic things. Um, you know, to go back, I guess Jurassic Park is kind of the theme for us here, but to go back to yes. Jurassic Park in the original book, uh, John Hammond, you know, in the movie, he's depicted as this sort of kindly grandfather who's got all the, you know, more money than he knows what to do with. And so he he imagines that he can kind of become the next Walt Disney or something by by giving the world this this thing. But in the book, it's actually presented much more cynically. I mean, he actually says the, in these little asides, he says things like it's really all about money, 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 mm. money, money, money. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like um, it's all about the money. Right. So so much of this like progress that is being made like so much of this like technocratic forward movement right even in terms of like like finding cures to diseases and stuff like that is ultimately like bound up in a profit making that is um you know to say the least i would say not entirely a good thing for the world as well so you know i i, I would i guess i would just want to know are these the kinds of questions right i mean these are the kinds of questions that i think lots of people from other disciplines know how to ask, um, certainly uh, philosophers, theologians, maybe even some social scientists, but are these progress studies scholars gonna be interested in this sort of a thing? Or is it more like you say, just are these going to be kind of the experts' experts who are the ones who sort of know how to like synthesize all of the kind of genius in the, in the, in the progressive movements of, of 
of technology and kind of figuring out how to make them better and better and better and apply them in more and more ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the point about profits is a good one that I hadn't really uh, thought about, but I do think it's certainly worth raising here. Um, the other thing I'll add, I was just messaging with a friend last night who was telling me that he wants to do a career pivot and focus on longevity stuff and, and, you know, join a firm or start a, start a fund or company that focuses on how to live for the longest. Uh, that we possibly can and, you know, optimize all of the, you know, our, our lipid profiles and our blood sugar profiles and, you know, genetics or epigenetics or whatever uh, to figure out how we can live the absolute longest that we can. And I said to him, I'm just not really interested in that question because we're all going to die. And I'd rather really focus on how to live my life well than figure out how to extend my life by five, 10, 15 years. You know, that's um, so that is, that is certainly one of my concerns with progress studies is that like, we're, we're trying to find sort of optimization on the margins here. How do we make, you know, how do we make our, um, our efforts to, you know, get to the moon uh, or get, get to Mars, you know, more like our efforts to get to the moon in the 1960s? And that could be a good question to answer. And I have another comment about that. Um, but if it's not rightly ordered, then it's not really a good question to answer. Like, why are, you know, why are we going to Mars, for example? Why is that something that, that we want to do? I think it's a good thing to do. And I think we have good reasons to do that. But I don't think everyone who wants to do it shares my reasons for wanting to do it, for example. Um, I, I also, I'm a fan of the HBO show Silicon Valley, which, uh, is definitely not for children and has some, um, some, well, quite a bit of, uh, you know, adult flavored humor. So I wouldn't watch it around children. Um, but it's, it's all a satire of Silicon Valley and the sort of culture of innovation. And there's a lot of, a lot of commentary on this type of thing in that show, but there's one line in particular where the main character is thinking about his new idea for innovation. And he says, he says, you know, I was thinking about the 1960s and the space race and how we went to the moon using computers with the power of a modern day pocket calculator. And in my pocket here in this phone, I have a processor that's literally one million times more powerful than that. And then think about how there are billions of these all over the world. And yet, we've, you know, we don't go back to the moon anymore. You know, we can't even make it to Mars. So there are all these very big questions that very big problems to solve that we haven't solved that we probably could. Um, if we knew how to do it correctly. So I will say, I think like, I, I see what they're saying on progress studies. Yeah, uh, I'm not here and you're not here as a Luddite saying like, no, we can't, we can't try to solve cancer more effectively. No, no, uh, no. Those, those are definitely good things to figure out. But those things have to be rightly ordered towards human flourishing. And some of them are much more easy. To, you know, it's much more easy to see how some of them are than others. Uh, for example, solving cancer, I think we can like very clearly see that this is a good thing to do. And this is a good thing to pursue. Uploading one's consciousness to the cloud or, uh, you know, creating an entire, uh, you know, creating an entire sequence of your exact genome and then being able to adjust certain genes to optimize for various traits, maybe not so much, you know, so right. uh, there need to be there, there needs to be some limiting principle, there need to be guardrails set up on this type of, of, of you know, methodological line of inquiry, if we're going to do it well. Right. And it's not all or nothing. I mean, I think that's the genius of that line from Ian Malcolm. It's uh, and it, that with each innovation, I mean, with each question that we ask, we need to think about why we're asking it. What what yeah. do we hope to gain from it? So, I mean, it's just too easy to kind of tar and feather somebody and accuse them of being a Luddite if they object to one particular technological innovation or even many technological innovations. Um, but uh there are still a great many that are very valuable and very good. It's not an all or nothing. It's not a pro-technology, pro-progress, or anti-technology anti and progress. It doesn't work that way. I will also simply add that I don't think they're necessarily articulating a view that is contrary to ours. 
No. Um, and so I don't want to sort of impugn them for doing that. I don't think that's the case. I just think that they didn't, they didn't, uh, you know, they could have had some extra paragraphs in there articulating what we're trying to articulate about this sort of the limiting principle or the guardrails. And that's what this, that's what this whole idea of, you know, the science of progress is lacking. If I could use an analogy, it would be like, um, I don't know. I, I just don't like Facebook, uh, in general as a company. And I really don't like their whole idea of the metaverse, trying to get us to live more in the metaverse than in the real world in many instances. And so it's, it's a, it's a bit like a strategy consultant or a process consultant going into Facebook and working with their metaverse teams and saying like, look, I've identified all these ways that you guys can be more efficient at building the metaverse and more effective at attracting people with your marketing into the metaverse and more, you know, uh, more creative in building things within the metaverse. And this is going to be great. It's going to optimize your metaverse efforts. But the, the question that they really should have asked is, should the metaverse even be built? Right. And, you know, I think that's that's a that's a question. That's a debate for another day. You and I probably agree on that. I think the metaverse is ridiculous and stupid and should never be built. Um, but I think that's that's kind of that's an analogy that maybe helps to explore what we're talking about here, that before we stop, before we stop and think about, you know, how we're going to do something, we need to think about whether or not we should do that, which is yeah. you know, cre- credit to that- Ian Malcolm. Right. And I think I and I, yeah, I want to reiterate what you said. I, I'm not exactly saying that they're not saying that. I, I think they probably right. agree with Malcolm. Yeah. Um, and I suppose my critique from the start was not so much what they're proposing, but just that we already have the language in a sense. We already yeah. have, I, I like in, in fact that what they seem to be proposing is something academic. I mean, it is, yeah. that it isn't just, oh, we need a new consulting class or we need sort <laughs> right. of something like that, right? I we mean, need it a new is startup actually, to solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is actually in a sense proposing fl- uh, proposing a, 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 an increase in philosophers or something, right? We need we need people who are trained to think about the whys, right? And, and not just the hows. Or we need people to think about the way all these different things relate to each other. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. The the progress studies does sound a little bit kind of postmodern jargony. And um, I do always find myself getting a little bit annoyed when, you know, people talk as if they're kind of reinventing the wheel when in the tradition there's already kind of the apparatus there, at least, you know, kind of philosophically or intellectually. But it's there's some fine ideas in this article. And I, and I think uh, I'd like to hear more from what these guys have to say. Totally agree. Any other closing thoughts? I think you wrapped it up pretty, pretty well there. So I have nothing to add. That's it for me. Cool. All right. So we now move to our final segment. And this is recommendations. I'll go first here. And I want to give a shout out to uh, listener Garrett. Uh, who actually uh, works in the same town in which I was born. Um, and Garrett wrote to me and said, you know, first of all, like the show that you're doing with Andrew, I think you guys are doing a good job. And then he said, I think you'll enjoy this article uh, that I read a while back. And it's all about uh, the Chicago White Sox and the baseball stadium, or it's a, a better word is actually ballpark because it's more classic, uh, that could have changed the history of baseball uh, baseball parks today, but didn't because it was never built. Um, Andrew, you've probably heard of the architect Philip Bess. Are familiar with some of his work? Yes, I am. Very interesting. So Bess, I think he uh, Garrett told me I didn't know this. Garrett told me he teaches at Notre Dame, um, but he I know he's written a book called Till We've Built Jerusalem, and I may have read an. I've definitely not. It's read very a good. Cover, right? Very good. Okay. Book. Yeah. Yeah, because he's he's a very thoughtful architect uh, about you know how. Um, how our architecture should reflect uh, the image of God as man has created us. Um, 
and he, yeah, he's just very good in the stuff that he designs and the way that he thinks about architecture. He thinks about it in a in a not postmodern sense, in a very pre-modern sense, uh, which is a good thing. But he's also a huge baseball fan. I did not realize that until uh, Garrett sent me this article. Um, and he, once upon a time, designed a new ballpark for the Chicago White Sox when they were going to tear down Comiskey Park. So they they did they decommissioned Comiskey and they built. Um, I think it became U.S. Cellular Field. Now it's like guaranteed rate field. Like just one of these examples of just like, you know, advertising, uh, ad placement insertion just gone, just run totally amok. So guaranteed rate field now towers, uh, you know, in the South uh, Chicago area. And uh, it's it's just ugly. It's a, it's a huge monstrosity. It, it sits right uh, along the interstate. So you drive by it, but it's a, it's a nightmare to get to by public transportation. Um, very little parking around there. Uh, not very walkable, walkable from many parts of the city. Um, and, uh, you know, even this article points out, even the home plate view looks like Southeast. So you can't even see the Chicago skyline from the home plate view, which would be pretty magnificent. So it's really just kind of a disaster. And, uh, Philip Bess's alternative was beautiful. It was built in the, in the sort of Wrigley style, like, you know, one city block, um, one full city block. It occupied, I think, um, no, I guess it was more than one block, but it occupied, exactly 10 acres um you know the sprawling ballparks of today occupy like 13 or 14 acres so they're just huge and massive uh, i mean one of the biggest is the new stadium in uh in in uh, arlington for the rangers andrew close to where you are yeah um and these things are just they're just towering monstrosities they're like monuments to human achievement like let's just see how big of a of a structure we can build um the article also goes into uh, how old school ballparks were built with seating more or less on top of each other so that no matter where you were in the ballpark, you were close to the action. And now they're built as a series of sort of ascending concentric rings so that as you go further up, you also go farther out, which one increases the size of the structure overall, but also pulls you farther and farther away from the action. Mm-hmm. And it's just overall just a less human, a less intimate experience. Um, because of the size, those stadiums are often no longer built in the city, but somewhere in the suburbs, you know, and you can only drive there and um, it, it becomes much less a part of the community. So I highly recommend this piece. It's super interesting. It's very long, uh, which is unusual for CBS sports, but a, a great deep dive into what could have been. And perhaps Andrew, you know, we talked about, we get what we want. Uh, we talked about how there is a, a, a revival of interest in this kind of architecture, perhaps one day, what, what can be once again, but I'll, uh, I'll include this in a link in the show notes. Well, this is very interesting, Zach. And, um, this is something that I want to bring to the to the attention of my colleague and our mutual friend, Bobby Mixa, who is a native of the South side of Chicago, White Sox fan, and also a fan of Philip Bess and this whole kind of uh, architectural stuff. I mean, there was, you know, there's this whole, there was this whole plan that Chicago was going to be like the Paris of the Prairie. I mean, it was going to be, there. It's there's an extraordinary story there, but um, very interesting about more recent, uh, this more recent possibility. So I look forward to reading that. Uh, well, let's let's just call out Bobby now and invite him on to the show as a guest yep. next week to talk about this. So, Bobby, come on. I'll reach out to you. Let's do it. Got to be on here, Bobby. Good. Well, is it my turn? Yes, let's go. Okay. Well, I'm going to recommend I was this is sort of a last minute decision. Uh, I have a few different things in my mind. I am I'm working on two book projects right now about movies, and I was going to recommend one of the movies that I just wrote about. But I think instead, I'm going to recommend a TV show that I watched because I don't, I'm not writing as many regular articles and reviews of TV shows 
lately because I've been so focused on some book projects. And uh, I happened to watch uh, the entirety of a, a season of a show that I want to tell you about, and it's called The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. Have you seen this, Zach? Have not. Haven't even heard of it. Well, here's what it is. It is, uh, yeah, it's definitely not for kids. It's, uh, it's pretty rough around the edges. But it is a show about the making of The Godfather, of the great mm. uh, 1972 yeah. Francis Ford Coppola masterpiece, The Godfather. Um, it focuses on the producer of The Godfather, whose name I didn't even know before I saw this series. Um, his name is Albert Ruddy, Al Ruddy. And he's played by Miles Teller on this TV show. Uh, Miles Teller, who's in... Um, I Top love Gun Teller, Maverick, yeah. and you know he's been in all Whiplash, kinds of, one of his best performances. Whiplash yeah. is, is maybe the thing that put him on the map, right? He's his star is really rising. It seems like yeah. this guy, um, Miles Teller, he also is the executive producer of the of the show, and wow, um, it features Matthew Good as a, a Hollywood producer. I really love him, great British actor. Um, it features Giovanni Ribisi as a as a famous uh, New York gangster. Um, it, it's one of these shows that it, it's not perfect by any means, but it is one of those shows that is really. If you're a film person, it's just one of these really delicious bites because it's like, you know, I love to like kind of get behind the scenes and imagine like what, you know, what it was like, like to see, you know, Pacino and, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, Marlon Brando on the set and to, to know all the kind of, you know, all the sausage making that goes on in getting even a really big time Hollywood movie made. You kind of just can't believe like all of the crazy stuff that happens in order to do it. So it's a 10 episode series, one series. Each one is a solid hour long, so it's a pretty big commitment to watch the show. But it's very well done, very high quality, good acting, uh, well shot. So if you have Paramount Plus, and I'll put in a little plug for them too. I'm actually, uh, um, I subscribe to Paramount Plus now, and uh, I'm finding that their content is pretty solid. They have they have some good stuff to to watch, and this show was kind of the reason that I decided to get it again after I had given it up, and okay. uh, I'm happy that I did. You have to check that out. I mean, Paramount Plus is one of those, you know, there's there's AMC Plus and a number of other kind of smaller ones, Peacock, uh, you know, but it's it's so interesting that we went, speaking of your point earlier about it's all about profit, we went from this point where you had to spend $80 a month on cable to the unbundling that was supposed to deliver, you know, all the channels you wanted for 20 or 30 bucks a month. But now you add up all your subscriptions and it, it more or less equals or even exceeds yeah. in some cases what you were paying for cable. So what what we do is sort of rotate, you know, yeah. we don't have Apple TV plus now we'll get it when Ted Lasso comes back. Right. And um, yeah, maybe we'll try Paramount plus specifically for the offer because it sounds pretty promising. Yeah, it's it's pretty worthwhile. And for Paramount plus, I think the one thing that they I think have going for them is they are really trying to be more like something like an HBO Max, um, yeah. more than a Netflix or a Peacock yeah. or something like that. And, um, you know, they're, they have a ways to go, but they're they're doing relatively well. That's great. OK. Well, those are the recommendations. Uh, the White Sox Ballpark article, which is linked in the show notes, and the show The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. All right. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode this week of What a Week. By the way, jury's still out on the name of that show. So if you have a better a better name idea, you know, send it to us. I'm, I'm, I'm open to ideas. Andrew's open to ideas. We haven't come up with anything better yet, but are definitely uh, open to hearing your ideas. Um, comments, questions on anything we talked about, recommendations for next week's recommendations or next week's close reads. Uh, ridiculous articles to throw in our misinformation segment next time. All of that is more than welcome. You can email me, Zach at CredoPodcast.com. You can email uh, the the inbox for both of us, Zach and Andrew at CredoPodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you. Bye.